Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. Hey, good morning, Harvest. We're glad to be with you this morning. It's Sunday, and Palm Sunday at that. I just want to say that I miss having your face here, and I I miss uh, having our welcome time, our time of greeting one another and singing worship together, and hopefully really soon we'll be able to do that. But as it stands right now, let's just continue on having church together this way, and uh, looking forward to that uh, Easter Sunday tomorrow, or next Sunday, excuse me, and bringing a message, uh, all hail King Jesus. And so let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation 4. Thank you, Ben, for reading that passage of Scripture. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter today. Uh, We are transitioning out of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 and 5 in a new mini-series called The Throne Room. It's a a time to focus on the throne of God, it's a time to focus on heaven, and it's a time, uh, importantly, in this text to focus on the worship of heaven. What does it look like? What do we do? There's not much in the Bible to describe thrones of the kings that were listed in the Bible. It's not something that they readily had available for us, especially in the Old Testament, but it was somewhat left to our imagination, and we kind of think, well, maybe the throne looked like this, or maybe it looked like that. And There was one case where the throne was listed, and it sticks out because of the grandeur that was in the description, and it was found in 1 Kings chapter 10. And here it's speaking of King Solomon's throne, And I want you to to listen along as I read and describe King Solomon's throne. Then King Solomon made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. But it doesn't stop there. It says the throne had six steps and it had a back that was round on top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each one of them. So we picture it now, it's ivory inlaid with gold. It has a back to it, armrests, and two lions on either side. But it doesn't stop there. It says, 12 lions stood on six steps, one on either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made before in any other kingdom. King Solomon had a great throne. And I'm kind of picturing this in in my head. I kind of hope you are too, because... um, It's pretty amazing, and and it's meant to be pretty intimidating, too. But, and everybody say but, now we get to look at the very, very throne room of God. Uh, And before we do that, though, do me a favor. Uh, Humor me, close your eyes, and stop for just a minute. Are they closed? I'm looking. What do you think the throne room of heaven looks like? Picture it in your mind right now. What do you think the throne room of heaven looks like? Are you picturing grandeur, beauty? What do you see? Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. Uh, Keep that thought in your mind, and we're going to look at our text today, and hopefully... uh, 
we'll be able to figure out what the throne room of God looks like to the best of our ability. Truthfully, going through that exercise really made me think of the song lyrics. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? You finish it. You finish it. I can only... That's our first point. Heaven. I can only imagine. Beginning with verse 1, we now transition, meaning we go on to the next point in the, the book of Revelation. Notice John says, after this. And I want you to underline that in your Bible. You do have your Bible open. After this. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first one, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. There it is again. Once again, I was in the spirit, just a kind of a reminder that this was an out of body experience like David had, like Paul had. Once again, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and the one seated on the throne. Now, John had just described all of the notes Jesus had wanted him to describe and send to the churches. But this was in completion of the outline that Jesus had given in Revelation 1.19. Laodicea, that church, was the end of the second point. Jesus had told John, hopefully you remember, in, in Revelation 1.19, he said, Write the things that you have seen. And that was verses 1 through 18 in chapter 1. And then write the things that are, that was chapters 2 and 3, and now he says, write those things that must take place after this. And so after this, John is beginning the same words to show that this is the part of the book that will finish the book that Jesus wanted us to see. And John said, after this, I looked and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. Translators are letting you know that John's pretty excited about this event. There are two key things that help us understand that. The first is the word behold. And the second is how he tries to describe things. It looks like, or it was like, and he's just like a kid who's trying to explain everything he saw at the circus. John is saying, behold, look, draw your attention. To what? The open door. John had no idea what this was, but he knew that heaven was above and it was a door that was open. Now question, if you've been following along, who opens a door that no man can close and closes one that no man can open? We know that it's Jesus who does that. But have we ever seen this before? Yes, we've seen it in Isaiah 6. We've seen it in Ezekiel 1 and in Acts chapter 7 with Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Stephen in that order. Now, Jesus opens a door and this door is different in that something happens that's important. The open door, and now we see John's call. John says, And the, vo the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Who called him up here? What does the text say? Jesus. Well, well how can you be so sure about that, Pastor? Well, this is important, especially related to this text. Make note of this. Scripture answers Scripture. 
Scripture defines and answers Scripture for us. And in Revelation 1.10, he wrote, I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. And here he says, I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. In both cases, John turns to see the risen Lord Jesus in his glorified state. But I also believe that this is here to show us what the calling home of his church looks like. John looked and the door was opened and the call went out and the call was come up here and it was like a trumpet blast. It reminds me of what 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says. For the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up to be with him in the air. We will all be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 says, For we... Uh, we, the Lord himself will descend from the, the heavens with the cry of a command and with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of a trumpet. Paul is saying it's going gonna, it's gonna to be like a command voice. It's going to be like an archangel's voice. It's going to be like the sound of a trumpet. And we who are alive and we who are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The term we often use is the term rapture, but some people say rapture is not in the Bible, but the term caught up is. Rapture was a, a term that came about when the Bible was translated from Greek to Latin in 400 A.D. It's a term familiar with the church. It's a term familiar in the Bible. Enoch was caught up or raptured. Elijah was caught up or raptured. Jesus himself was raptured. John was raptured and then brought back. And Philip, after he had baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, had been snatched away and taken to another place in Acts chapter 8. And I'm blessed that nothing is hidden from us. God shows us what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And this catching away from, of the church is proclaimed and seen as an example, I believe, and as many others do, in the calling of John up to show that there, how quickly it will happen and how awesome it will be. Let me say that again. I believe, as many others do, that the calling of John up in this raptured-type moment is to show us how quickly the church will be raptured and how awesome that will be. Now, I could preach a whole message on this, but time will not allow me to do it today. There may be another day for that. And we will need to get to the throne. we got to get to the throne because that's the hub of this message. The throne room of the king is awesome. Let me say that again. The throne room of the king of kings is awesome. You say that. Say it with me. The throne room of the king is awesome. And John has been given the vision of the risen and glorified uh, Savior. He's alive. Then he's been given a prophetic look, look at the church age. And now the homegoing of the saints. And what can be your reaction? John's reaction circled this word, behold. It's like this. It's like, behold. Would you just... Look at that. If I could quote my favorite Nicolaism, look at it. Would, would you just look at it? Awesome. Actually, John is oftentimes out of words. And so what he uses is had the appearance of or looked like. To him, there was nothing to compare this to. 
So it looked like this, or it had the appearance of this. Let's take a look at what this throne room looks like. Write this down. Behold, this is your God. Notice in this all the prepositional phrases to help us see what this looks like. The, the around the throne, the from the throne, the before the throne, the around and before the throne. John is, is trying to help us, but what he is showing us is this beautiful appearance of our Heavenly Father. Notice verse 3, it says this, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and cardamom. And all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The throne, or from the throne, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Notice the description that, that John gives of the Father himself. He says, he looked like Jasper. Now, Jasper here, um, Scripture answers Scripture. Later on it says, this Jasper looked as if it were bright as clear crystal. So it's probably better to say that this was a diamond. Bright and pure. It was the last stone on the breastplate of Aaron for the tribe of Benjamin. And then... The other color, some would call it sardius, was a fiery, bloody, colored ruby. It was also on the breastplate of Aaron. It was, it was the very first stone. As John leans into the picture before the throne, the one seated on it who is shining, he is shining like a diamond and a ruby. And church, listen, look up here. God is radiating and shining his holiness and his judgment and justice and wrath. This is the God who dwells in unapproachable light. Now viewed through the lens of scripture. It, is, that, is that what you had pictured earlier? Now we see something incredible along with these bright white lights and these red hues that seem to take over the picture. Now we see around the throne something incredible, a monocolored rainbow. Not an arc rainbow, though. Notice it says it's a full circle rainbow. John uses a bunch of phrases here, and on this one he says, on the throne and around the throne, and, and here the descriptor is, of a rainbow that was emerald in appearance around the throne, a full circle. It fully encircled the throne of God, signifying his faithfulness and his mercy. No wonder John was like, look at this. The bright lights of his holiness, unapproachable lights, the bright reds to show his justice, and around the color green that is soothing color of his mercy. It's a brilliant image. It's totally separate from the great white throne judgment where there is no mercy. This was the mercy seat. John continues in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit. 
So we see God the Father is there and the Holy Spirit is there. And this is bringing to mind imagery of Mount Sinai when Moses went to receive the law or God with Elijah on the mountain or Ezekiel 1 in the vision of the throne room. Scripture, again, telling us about Scripture. Now, can you imagine this sight? You're called by a loud trumpet voice, the voice of Jesus, into the very throne room of the Almighty God that 2 Timothy says that no one can look on him and live, that he dwells in unapproachable light, and John is now allowed to see this grand vision of the bright lights of his holiness and the bright lights of his, his, his justice and the calming, soothing rainbow. And then out of all of that, boom, crash, lightning and noise and thunder. John is like the flashes of lightning and the voice. That's really what the rumblings mean there and the peals of thunder. Like it, it translates really the flashes of lightning and thunder of thunder. Behold, no wonder he's gobsmacked here, unable to speak, just behold, this is your God. What would you do if you were able to see, listen, if you were able to see for just a moment the throne room of God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, what would you do? Would you be able to say anything at all? I mean, picture this. John is undone. If you read the first chapter of Ezekiel, Ezekiel bows and gets as low as he can, as, as fast as he can. Isaiah, who comes into the throne room of God by a grand vision, says, woe is me, for I am unclean. It's a good reminder to us when in the presence of God, we should be extremely humbled and be as low as fast as we can because he is so far above us. One more thing about this throne, the throne of God. Notice verse 6, and before the throne there was, as it were, again, he, he's having a hard time describing this, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This isn't an actual sea, but it's, it's the base of the throne. It's a great expanse of pure glass, like fine crystal. So beautiful, so tranquil to look at, like a calm sea. It would seem to me that there is a bit of a paradox going on here. You have everything at eye level being overwhelming, and the lower you get, the calmer it gets, and the calmer you feel. That's the image of our Father's throne. Now, humor me again. Close your eyes. I'll wait. Forget about what you already thought. With the image of Scripture now fresh in your head, what does the throne room look like? You have your eyes closed? I'll read. I looked and I saw a throne. Do you see it? And the one seated on the throne was illuminating. Do you see it? Glowing like a diamond, pure and beautiful. Glowing also like a ruby, a sardis. Around him are gentle tones of emerald. A complete rainbow encircling. 
Below that, the sea of tranquility and peace and beauty, and around him the flashes of lightning and thunder and the fire of the Holy Spirit. Can you see it? Okay, look back up here. Hear me, church, when I say this. To say that God is indescribable is an understatement. To say that he is indescribable is beyond our comprehension, but true. And John is trying to explain what that moment will be like. So, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Why? Because, behold, this is your home. This is your home. Can I get an amen in the chat on that? This is your home. I don't know about you, church, but what I, what I feel the most when I am at home, when, when, I, when I feel the most at home, we are together. We are, we are sharing our common bond of Jesus and his word. And when we are together and we are, we are singing his praises and when we are suffering and rejoicing together, and when we are loving each other by the love of Christ, I feel at home. But that is nothing compared to this place. The only place that will be better is when we are gathered at the very throne room of God for worship. And that's what this text is about, the throne of God. The throne of God or thrones is used 14 times in this text. There's only 11 verses. It's used 14 times. I'd say it's rather important. And it's to show us, family, the importance of properly placed worship to our Father. John goes on to explain the other things around the throne room of heaven, and that helps us get a better view. Let's start with who's in our home. In verse 4, notice, around the throne there were 24 elders, and they were seated on thrones, the elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Verse 6, around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature an ox, the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. So write this down. There are important believers there. Write that down. In our home, there are important believers there. We've viewed the throne, the Father, the Holy Spirit are present, and we see the base of the throne, and now around the throne, two things. There's 24 elders, and there's four living creatures. Let's take the 24 elders first. Who are they? Well, again, Scripture is answering Scripture, so let's find out. Some say they were angels. Some say it was a mix of Israel and, and Christians. Um, but I, if we allow Scripture to answer Scripture, I can't say that that's either of those. And let me explain why. Notice verse, 20, verse 4. You help me by, by figuring this out with me. Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were elders, presbuteros, not ever used of angels, only of men, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So notice there was a position of leadership. That's one. They were clothed specifically. Do you see how they were clothed? They were wearing certain things on their heads. What does it say? Dressed in white and crowns. Are, are you seeing this with me? 
So the big question is this, where have we seen this before? Uh, haven't we talked about this very same thing before? Let's jog your memory with this statement, to the one who conquers. We spent seven weeks walking through the churches of Revelation, and at the very end of every church, Christ says, to the one who conquers, and he promises something out of that. One thing he promised is, I will give him authority and he will rule. That was in chapter 2, verse 27. Is that speaking of an angel? No. Angels are never promised rule over a believer. They are servants. Number two, they're clothed in white garments. To the one who conquers, I will clothe them in white garments. Uh, chapter 3, verse 5. Again, is, are angels clothed in white garments? Yes. But this is a promise given to believers. Number three, I will give him the crown of life. Chapter 2, verse 10. Now, is this speaking about an angel? No. This is speaking about the one who overcomes. And last one, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat with my father on his throne. To be seated means to reign. You should understand that. It's not talking about rest. It's talking about authority. It's about talking about the one who reigns. Listen. When we say God is seated on the throne, we're not talking about he's so tired he needs rest. We're talking about the fact that he is reigning, that this is him reigning and ruling. And on the throne room, he is seated, and 24 elders are seated with him. So is this about angels? No. They don't sit, they work. Now listen, all of these promises are given by Jesus to the church and to the believers in the churches to help them persevere. And how would you feel if you have on the authority of God's word, church, that he kept his promises? How would you feel? Would you press on? Yes. Would you believe it's worth it? Yes. That you're not going to give in? Yes. Well, God is faithful to his promises, amen? Amen. So being faithful to who he is, isn't it amazing that he doesn't just say this will happen, he shows us how this happens. Again, we let scripture answer scripture and we see that these must be believers, that this is the fulfillment of God's promise to us, that the raptured church sits around the throne of God reigning with him like pillars I know the logical question is, there's only 24 chairs though, Nate. I'm pretty sure from every tribe, tongue, and language, there's going to be more than 24 people. Well, 2 Chronicles helps us understand that. 12 has always been the number of administration in Scripture. 12 tribes, 12 disciples, 12 apostles, 12 groups of priests to minister to the 12 tribes. That was until David broke those 12 groups into 24 24 priests, 24 groups of singers, because it represented now a larger group. Did you catch that? It was a picture here of the 24 elders representing every tribe, tongue, and language. It's an illusion here also that these elders are kings and priests. Now, who in Scripture is called kings and priests in the New Testament? Well, 1 Peter 2 says that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people belonging to God, 
that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into wonderful light. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, he says, He made us a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever again. If I could quote someone uh, trusted on this source and subject, I would say this. It is unlikely then that the 24 elders, these are not my words, again, these are John MacArthur, the 24 elders are angels or Israel or tribulation saints or a combination of Israel and the church. He's saying it's not that any of those combination. That leaves one most acceptable possibility is that they represent the raptured, glorified, coronated church which sings the song of redemption. They have crowns and they live in a place prepared for them and they have gone to be with Jesus. Well, that's one guest, the 24 elders. What about the other guests? I wish I could say it's a lot easier to explain the living creatures. Notice verse 6. Picture this in your mind. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. I, I don't know that I have anything. I know that they have eyes all around. I know that they're living creatures. I know that Ezekiel mentions them. Isaiah 6 mentions them having six wings, having a face. Ezekiel actually said they had, each one of these had the same four-sided face, uh, there's slight variances between the, the, them, which is okay. Um, some say it's to, to these show the fourfold ministry of the Messiah, that he was the king, which represented the lion, that he was the servant, which represented the ox, that he was the son of man, which was represented by man, and that he was the ruler of heaven and earth, which was represented by the eagle. Some say it's reminiscent of the promise that God gave Noah in Genesis 9:10 where God's covenant was for men, for every beast, for every living creature, and every bird and livestock. And all of them are represented there. And he sets his bow in the sky, and now they serve him. The Israelites themselves had this saying, the mightiest among the birds is the eagle, the mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull, the mightiest among the wild beasts is the lion, the mightiest among all is men. But they aren't mightier than God, right? Now, all of that being said, here's what I do know. They're angelic creatures that have the privilege and duty to serve God day and night. Ezekiel calls them cherubim, and the cherubim were associated with God and his power, symbolically guarding his holiness. These four will be involved in the tribulation, and we see here what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 when they said they had six wings and different faces and they flew and they covered their face. They covered their feet, always serving God, never wanting to look into his holiness. They were the first worshipers and the first worship leaders in heaven. And this antiphonal chorus goes back and forth saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, always, forever. In your home, the throne, the 24 elders around the throne like pillars and these four living creatures. Awesome. 
But behold, your worship. Look at verse 8. These worship leaders, these four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within, day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Talking about his eternality. And whenever the living creatures give honor, glory, honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The worship of God in heaven focuses on four things. One, his perfection. Again, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Anytime you have two words together in Hebrew, it, it's important. But put three words together, such as in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. This is extremely important. To say it three times was to emphasize greatly the one amazing thing that God wants us to worship. His holiness. Always and forever before his throne, these words are said. Back and forth, back and forth, never ending. That's what the text says, right, in verse 8. Day and night, they never cease saying. MacArthur says this phrase is the summation of all that he is. Listen, God's holiness and complete separation from evil in any and every form. He is absolutely untainted by any evil by error or wrongdoing. So they, they, they worship his perfection. They worship his power. The Lord God Almighty is who they worship. It says that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Almighty is used nine times in the New Testament. Eight times it's used in the book of Revelation. It's often used in the Old Testament to emphasize the all-powerful El Shaddai God of creation. To Abraham, he was identified as the Almighty, meaning the strongest, the most powerful being, utterly devoid of any weakness. This is your God. Those who are um, the one who conquers, whose strength none can oppose, the Almighty. And we are worshiping not only his holiness, but his power. And then notice his eternal nature. He was and is and is to come. God is eternal. Amen? Let's get some more amens in the chat. God is eternal. He is the one in verse 9 who lives forever. In verse 10, who lives forever. In all of the Old Testament and New Testament, who lives forever. And fourthly, they worship his worthiness. Now to be worthy of something... It was used in, of Roman emperors as they marched into victory. But God is much more worthy to receive worship than any created being. Let me say that again. God is much more, look here. God is much more worthy or worthier to receive any kind of praise and worship than any created being. And because of his worthiness, these four living creatures give him glory and honor and praise. Now, this is a great place to start in our worship, church. This is, this is where we should be looking at his perfection and his power and his 
eternal nature and his worthiness. Someone says, you sing about God a lot. Amen. We need to worship him and what he is uh, in his character. It's an amazing scene. And now the elders chime in in this worship as well. So whenever the living creatures, verse 9, say they give glory and honor and thanks to him, those who are seated on the thrones who live forever, said the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord, and God to receive glory, honor, and power. Notice their reaction. Every time the creatures give glory, they fall down, they cast their crowns, they worship him. It's ultimate praise and ultimate humility. They're saying, you are worthy, God. It's personal. You're worthy to receive. It's a relationship to the, uh, the, the dignity and the greatness of his office. You're worthy to receive glory. Glory is, is what he is worth. Honor is relationship to the dignity and greatness of his office. And finally, power. That means creative energy. God is, is to be worshipped because he is all-powerful. Because he is the creator. I do enjoy some of you often posting pictures of God and his great creation. He is to be praised for that. In fact, this doxology given is about his creation. The first doxology was the creature's looking into his holiness. The second doxology was the elders exalting his creation. The next doxology will be about the Redeemer. The scene of worship in heaven is the worship of the Almighty, the one who created all things. It's, it's a great reminder that from nothing came something super incredible. And the text answers evolutionary concerns and theistic evolutionary concerns. Notice, it clearly says, God created. Boom. End of story. Not a big bang, not an ooze out of nothing, but God did it, and by his will he sustains it. And he didn't walk away. You know, theistic evolution says God created, but then let nature take its course. Well, no, that's not what the text says. The text says that the 24 elders fall down um, before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever, and they cast their crowns before him, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He's there, taking care of nature. By his will they are sustained. Worthy is the Lord, amen. Now listen, this is the hub of the message. The throne room of the king is awesome. And the worship of the king is fitting because of all that we behold. Many years ago, probably between my sophomore and junior season uh, of soccer, I realized uh, with some coaching advice that I had no left foot. And it's good when you play the game of soccer to have, uh, be able to play uh, both feet and, and be able to use both feet well. And so I took that word of wisdom and spent the entire summer practicing with my left foot only. I became one-sided on the other side 
practicing how to be better at this. Now, I say that to say this. How, how can we practice what we've just learned about worship and the throne room? And I want to close with this in the time that we have remaining. Four things to help us practice what we have learned about worship. Do it day in, day out. Do it day in, day out. Based on what we've just read, how can we maximize our effort to practice what we learned about worship? Here's the first thing. Maximize your effort on focusing on the throne room of God here and now. Let it change you. Meditate this week on the holiness of God. Meditate this week on the beauty of this picture that John has been given of the very throne room and let it energize you. Maximize your effort. Don't put minimal time in. Put a lot of time in. You with children in the household, talk about it. Did you hear this in the message? What does this mean? How do you take this? What joy can we come have out of this? And let's worship God because of this. Maximize your effort to focus on the throne room of God now. And then secondly, engage God's word in relationship to who he is and praise him for that. After we have focused on the throne room, engage his word this week, reading about who he is and take those characteristics of God that his word says and thank him for it. Be like the 24 elders and be like the four living creatures who gave worthy praise, honor, and glory to God. How is God seen in the Bible and how should I praise him for that? Thirdly, not only maximize your effort on focusing on the throne room, not only engaging God's word in relationship to who he is, but take a prayer walk and give God glory for his work in creation. It's okay if you guys head outside every once in a while and, and, and walk around and, and just look at creation. It's a great time of year. The grays are starting to subside and now we begin to see flowers. Now we begin to see all kinds of things just popping up. It's a great time of year to go for a walk and thank God. Thank God for those little bulbs that are popping up and giving us beautiful flowers, the tulips and others. Uh, thank God for the green grass. I was thanking him yesterday as I mowed my grass for just the, the beauty and the way it looked. Spend some time doing that. Maximize your effort of worshiping him now. And lastly, do as the elders do. Be humble and bow to his greatness and proclaim his worthiness. I read this statement this week and I thought it was really good, so I included it in my notes. Believers are created beings that have no right to act independently, but should rather humbly submit themselves to their maker. That's what worship is. Worship is saying, I'm not worthy. Worship is saying, you are worthy, and I'm going to give my glory to you and let you be glorified. And the elders did that, and the, 24 living, or the four living creatures did that. They humbly bowed to his greatness and proclaimed that he is worthy to receive. Well, what have we seen so far? God is on the throne. The Holy Spirit is around. The church has been called home. The cherubims are active. The angels are present. And now the stage is set for the unveiling of the Redeemer, Jesus. But for that, you'll have to tune in next week. 
You are loved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time in in Revelation. God, you told Abraham, shall I not tell him, Abraham, what I'm about to do, for he is great. Nothing should be hidden from him. And you have not hidden anything from us, even to the extent of showing us how beautiful and awesome you are. This very throne room that you uh, invite us into is awe-inspiring. Help us to be inspired this week to maximize our effort of worshiping you. In our stay-at-home time, in our time away, God, we ask that you would, would, would stir our hearts towards home, stir our hearts towards our eternal home, to see you face-to-face. And next week, as we hail King Jesus, the one worthy to take the throne, receive the scrolls, and to usher in your justice, God, we We pray that our hearts would be stirred even more. And Father, for the one who is listening today that may not know you in this way and may not believe in you in this way, would you stir their hearts towards you as well? And would you save them? We do pray for this. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel, Cambridge, Ohio. Check out our website at harvestcambridge.org or like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. You are loved.